everybody. Scott Bound and Brian Last right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And in keeping with the holiday spirit, we've got a special look at some of the biggest bouts and most savage beatings of seasons past. Memphis Mayhem, I was fortunate enough to catch live at the Mid-South Coliseum as a young man growing up in the Bluff City. That's right, Scott. We'll be looking at Austin Idol's very first appearance as a babyface in the territory for a rare Sunday night show you attended in 1979 before moving on to perhaps one of the biggest nights ever in the territory, the triumphant return of the king after a year-long absence from a broken leg in December 1980, seeking revenge on his former manager, Jimmy Hart. Along the way, we'll hear your memories of former ICW world champion Randy Macho Man Savage's debut at the Coliseum, as well as classic bouts involving AWA world champion Nick Bockwinkle. We're also going back to the 1970s this week to speak with Jerry Jarrett to get his opinion on the greatest world champion to appear in Memphis. And we've got rare classic audio of the King's first babyface promo as a challenger to the NWA world title, a rematch signed by longtime Alliance godfather, Sam Mushnick. Yeah, and that is so weird to hear Mushnick's name kicking around on the Memphis TV show. Uh, So that's a rare clip indeed I'm looking forward to. Ah, holiday memories that warm the cockles of my heart, darling. Welp, as a wise man with a banana nose often said, if we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back, right after this. This is Jerry the King Lawler. Only Fireworks City has the main event rocket assortment. A $25 value for only $750. That's a 70% discount. For fireworks that are really out of this world, follow me to Fireworks City. Oh no, I really hate this part. There are three Fireworks City locations in West Memphis. Go across either bridge. Also, Cotton Cabin at I-40 and Candor Road. Or Get Well and State Line Road. The biggest selection and the lowest prices are at Fireworks City. Oh my gosh, I remember the Fireworks City commercial coming on and, you know, the big finale at the end. Lawler's in full wrestling regalia and he's riding a giant rocket, you know, and wearing a cape and it explodes (laughs) and seemingly this is the demise of the king. Uh, I remember my mother looking at me and going, and this is your sports hero. (laughs) And I went... And I had I had I had no retort. I just kind of put my head down and I was like, leave him alone. He's just, you know, he's making an extra buck. Jesus. But uh, anyway, uh, speaking of family, uh, I, I would like to speak a little bit about my sister, Angie Bowden, um, as most of you know, or I think some of you know, uh, Angie passed away unexpectedly at the age of 49 on December 7th. Uh, I was scheduled to come to Memphis to spend some time with her on December 13th. I really wish she could have uh, held on for five more days. Um, I had no idea that she was in any kind of um, any kind of medical danger. Uh, her health uh, seemed to be good. Uh, we don't know a, a lot yet. Uh, the autopsy will be uh, forthcoming. But uh, it's been a great chance for uh, my family to bond. You know, my dad lives in Florida. I live in Los Angeles. And so we all kind of came together and, uh, and, we, and we got through it. And I have a lot of fond memories uh, of my sister in relation to the wrestling business. Uh, when we were little kids, I remember us screaming and pouting when my dad would turn off our cartoons and switch it over to WHBQ to watch the wrestling show. Um, for me, 
it took the Mongolian stomper to kind of wear me down into submission and become a fan. While for Ange, uh, I think ringside bells started ringing. And when uh, she first laid eyes on the milky white baby fat of Tommy Wildfire Rich, who was kind of a diamond in the rough at that point, once uh, Rich left for Georgia, uh, Angie sort of had to settle for Bill Dundee. And I remember my sister and I get into an argument in 1979 when Lawler returned to the dark side and turned on the superstar after being slighted for an AWA world title match with Nick Bockwinkle. I sided with Lawler, you know, despite his rule-breaking ways. I mean, the way I saw it, he was the king, you know, and he deserved the shot. And Dundee had already had a shot at the title, and he came up short, no pun intended. And when the king turned heel, he didn't really change his wrestling style. I mean, he was always punching and gouging and pulling chains and throwing fire. And he was always kind of a smart aleck on the uh, on the mic. He just became a lot more vicious uh, in the ring and, and during his promos. But to me, that just made him all the more entertaining. And it actually ended up one, <laughs> one Saturday morning with my sister punching me in the nose. You know, that, that kind of experience and over the years and, and kind of battling with my sister prepared me for uh, future battles with uh, the likes of Miss Texas and Randy Hales. <laughs> Around the same time in 79, when the King triumphed once again over that tenacious little bulldog from Australia, Angie experienced a growth spurt and shot up to about 5'4", uh, 5'5", five, 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 which meant she now literally looked down on her wrestling idol, uh, whose superstar was fading fast in her big brown eyes. And for the next couple of years, Angie and her fellow cheerleaders and softball teammates who spent the night on Friday nights never really paid attention to wrestling again. That is until fall 1982 when the Fabulous Ones debuted in an MTV-style video to Billy Squire's Everybody Wants You, complete with state-of-the-art strobe light technology and quick cuts. But eventually, Kern and Lane moved on for greener pastures, and um, Ange was disgusted with these city slickers, as Jackie Fargo, the mentor of Kern and Lane, he sort of buried them on, on the air, you know, that they were no longer, they got a little too big for their britches, and they wanted to go to the big cities. So... Fargo, to uh, recreate the magic of the Fabulous Ones, calls on two good old Tennessee boys. Tommy Rich comes back, this time sporting a lot more flabby flesh than in years gone by, and, uh, and Eddie Gilbert. And they attempted to uh, take the place of Kern and Lane, uh, quickly becoming the 80s equivalent of New Coke and the wrestling business. Angie's interest fizzled until I started refereeing in the early 90s. Angie, my girlfriend, my college girlfriend at the time, uh, Christy Frisch, would go to the matches every Monday night with the two free tickets I was able to provide them, uh, courtesy of Mr. Guy Coffey. You almost had to pry those tickets out of Mr. Coffey's hands. That was one of the few perks that we got as being performers uh, in Memphis at that point. And because they were both in attendance that fateful night in uh, May 1994, I asked Eddie Gilbert to involve me in the finish of the main event, something that would really shock my sister and my girlfriend, uh, like maybe an ill-timed fireball to the face. Uh, instead, when Lawler waved me into the dressing room, he hesitantly told me like he wasn't sure about this idea. <laughs> He's like, Scott, we're turning you heel. Like it was almost like a question, like, can you do this? And, uh, and of course, I was just like, my adrenaline was running. I look over at Eddie. And he kind of shoots me a devilish grin, and he's rubbing his goatee chin. And uh, as we walked out of the dressing room, Eddie whispered, think they'll be shocked? Kind of suppressing a laugh, I mumbled, yeah, uh, that, that should do it. And when I eventually kicked Lawler in the back of the head, and I remember my sister telling me afterward that she and Christy looked at each other, and they kept going, is this, is this happening? Did, did he just do it? <laughs> they kept going over it in their mind, like they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And then they saw people throwing stuff at uh, at me and, you know, how are we going to get out of here? Is it going to be a riot? 
And I told them, just go. Get in my candy apple red Mitsubishi Eclipse sports car that I often bragged about for no reason on television. And uh, meet me at Huey's Midtown. And we'll laugh about this over some burgers and beers. Meanwhile, I was smuggled out in one of the Hills cars. And they dropped me off. Uh, Just so happens I was at Huey's Midtown last night. I've been in town since, uh, I believe, uh, the ninth, uh, and Angie's funeral was this past week. And I couldn't help think back to that wonderful night. Really, my dream had come true at that point, and it was something that my sister knew meant a lot to me. Uh, and we laughed. We were laughing until we almost cried. We had beer coming out of our nose. Um, it was very sophisticated, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was a really wonderful memory. And I, I, I just uh, I have to thank everyone who sent me a uh, a note on Facebook and Twitter. Some of you who have been longtime fans of my column uh, even picked up the phone and gave me a call or, or sent me a text. I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate that. My family has never been really that close. And so to have that extra support really meant a lot to me. And uh, Brian, and you, and you showed the... <laughs> the uh, patience of a saint, uh, really since day one, since we started doing this. But uh, I, I really appreciate uh, the last couple of weeks. It's um, like I said, it's been, it's been very helpful. And I just want to say, without this being too much of a downer, I know Angie would want the show to go on. Sissy, um, the show is for you. Scott, you talked about Angie being there when you uh, had your big heel turn in the early 90s, but you did say she was a fan earlier. I think you said she enjoyed the milky white baby baby fat on Tommy Rich in the 70s. But I got to ask you, this is her attending a show when you're actively involved. You've talked about attending various shows. Did she ever attend shows at the Coliseum with you before this? No. Um, yeah, back then, you know, if you were granted permission to go to the Coliseum, you know, and I think this is one reason why uh, it was getting harder to draw in the early 80s, even though Memphis had probably arguably the best television show in the country, loaded with talent. Uh, if not the best, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to say the best wrestling show. It was definitely the most entertaining show. Let's just say that. But a lot of uh, families were moving to the suburbs. So, you know, if you wanted to go to the Coliseum, these were these were events uh, reserved for special occasions. So while, you know, I devoted my nights to the Coliseum for wrestling, my sister was seeing Van Halen, Prince, uh, Kiss, and then Van Halen again. You know, because they would always kind of coincide with, you know, a birthday or if you did, you know, if you got straight A's in school. Uh, in my cases, uh, it, it usually revolved around the holidays. And also I would get maybe a show at the beginning of summer break and then one right in the middle and then one right at the end. So each one of those segments, you know, it, you had like a four week window to sort of figure out, you know, the the show that you wanted to attend. And uh, my uncle sort of started this tradition in Christmas 1978. Uh, this was the night, this was the infamous night that Austin Idol ruined my Christmas by knocking off Lawler in a stunning upset for the Southern heavyweight title. I was in jovial mood and this is like, you know, I was just, I was so young and he, Lawler was like my first like real hometown sports hero. I know it sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> we watched Jack Eaton and he gives the result and I just like, I'm going to, I'm going to bed. And my uncle Robert comes in there and, and he goes, you know what? And he goes, I know your dad is not a big fan of going to the Coliseum. But I'll take you and we'll see the king get his hands on Austin Idol in January. And I went, all right. 
right. So that cheered me up. So I guess I have Austin to thank for that. I, I never really thought about it that way. So, you know, I, I, I you know, so I was like, okay, so which show, you know, because I want I want to make sure it's like a really special one. So I actually held out until January 19th, uh, 1979. Uh, when it was announced out of nowhere that uh, Mil Mascaraz, who I'd seen flying all, all over the covers of the After magazines for two years, would make his Memphis debut. Apparently paid off for some ungodly amount of money by Austin Idol to be his partner against Jerry Lawler and Jackie Fargo in a stretcher match. Now, of course, this cherished childhood memory has now been forever tarnished. Thanks to my buddy Mark James, whose new book over at MemphisWrestlingHistory.com, uh, the one with the really boring title, uh, <laughs> it, it see, seems, to, seems to reveal that as far as the Tennessee Athletic Commission is concerned, it was uh, Francisco Flores, not Aaron Rodriguez, under the iconic black and silver hood on this evening. Now, this goes against everything that Jerry Jarrett has told me. And if Jerry Jarrett thought up that detailed a story on the spot when I asked him in Charlotte at an NWA Legends Fan Fest convention that he is the greatest liar and con man of all time. And, I, and, and you know, it helps me a little bit of both in, in, the, in, the, in the wrestling business, but he seems so sincere. I mean, I could almost see Salvador Luteros Mansion, you know, who was the, the go-between who arranged this appearance for Mascaras to not only appear in Memphis, but to also do a stretcher job for, for Lawler and Fargo. As a heel. Yeah, as a heel. And, uh, it makes know, no sense. I mean, that's the issue that always comes up. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. No Mascaras, a major star <laughs> in every magazine, especially the Aftermags, a baby face known worldwide, would come into Memphis one time, with very little buildup, <laughs> as a heel, and then do a stretcher job when he's also known as a guy who doesn't want to give his opponent anything. You know, Scott, I talked about this a while back on Austin Idol Live with Austin, and he was insistent that it was Mil Moscaris, and he actually went into detail about his issues working with him. He said the match he had with Mil Moscaris in Japan was the worst match he ever had, because Mil Moscaris was a difficult guy to work with. So Austin Idol, on top of Jerry Jarrett, two guys who may not necessarily always be on the same page. <laughs> Both of them have said it was Mil Moscaris there. You know, one theory that I've heard talked about amongst me and a couple other wrestling geeks I speak to is that <laughs> the idea that the license would be for Francisco Flores with the Tennessee Athletic Commission could possibly be, if it really is Mil Moscaris, Aaron Rodriguez, that he's using the license for Francisco sure. Flores so he doesn't have to get licensed. Sure. And I can totally see that. Uh, and at that time, Flores was working for Nick Goulas, I believe has uh, either the Mexican angel or the maybe under hood is the blue angel, something like that. Uh, so he was definitely in the area. And actually, he and uh, Rodriguez went back some years ago. So they were actually friends. So it's it's hard to say. I, I've uh, I've reached out to uh, I kind of ribbed Mark James. I said, "Hey, I just got off the phone with Jerry Jarrett." He said, "No, Flores picked him up from the airport." Yeah, you're exactly right. But uh, I haven't actually confirmed yet with uh, with Jerry Jarrett. So hopefully, we'll have to have Jerry back here at some point to discuss it. But the thing, another thing too, even though I was only gosh eight years old, I mean, Mascaraz, you know, that torso, that's that's pretty distinct. You know, I mean, there are not too many guys walking around with that. And as I recall, Flores had, you know, a, a solid, thick build, but he had a big gut. I mean, I, I really don't think that uh, I would have been fooled. But 
Who knows? They, Do you they remember did. him sucking in his gut and walking around on his tippy toes? Because <laughs> that might be a clue. That would have been a dead giveaway. But well, but not necessarily because think if you're if you're Flores in in that situation, you're probably going to do the same because he didn't have the cut physique that Mascaris had. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Mark James is is uh, older than me uh, by about four years, and he remembers uh, just like I do on Tuesday afternoon, Jack Eaton. The Channel 5 sportscaster, WMC-TV, were the same studio where the wrestling show was always filmed. He would do the wrestling results, often very deadpan. But uh, they showed the clip there. And, uh, man, somebody I, I wish someone somewhere had that clip. Uh, but I asked her, and I said, uh, I noticed you didn't show it on TV the following Saturday. He goes, no, I, I felt like uh, you know he went above and beyond to help us out. And it was the respect that I had for Aaron. And he was... I mean, it all, he was completely lucid. It was probably the most detailed conversation I've ever had with Jerry Jarrett. Uh, So we'll see. It's interesting. It adds to the mystery, I suppose. Well, here's another thing to look at. Where was Mil Moskris working at that time? I don't see any online database with Mil Moskris career results. And by the way, someone should do one because that would be a really interesting one to look at because he was all over the world. But. If we look at 1979, the beginning of 79, this period of time, this isn't necessarily something that says it really was him or it wasn't, but Mil Moscaris was a semi-regular in Houston at this time. So on December 29th at the Sam Houston Coliseum, so the end of 78, Mil Moscaris versus Gino Hernandez, Mil Moscaris beat Gino Hernandez in a mask versus mask match. They come back on the 7th at the Summit, which is a pretty big show. That's bigger than the Sam Houston Coliseum. And Mil Moskris teams with Jose Lothario goes to a draw with the Funk Brothers. Now, they come back to the Sam Houston Coliseum on the 19th, the same night of this show we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mil Moskris is not on that show. Ah, well, but there you go. <laughs> but he's on the following show on the 28th at the Summit again. So... I don't know. Again, that's not necessarily a clue, but he worked several shows in a row and then was not on the show that would have been the same night as this show. Yeah. He goes, you know, I'm just going to take a night off here in Houston and go do a stretcher job for Jackie Fargo in Memphis. (laughs) It's a cool idea, too, because no one will ever believe you. Like, Mill, you've never put anyone over. Let me tell you something. I went to Memphis. I went against (laughs) Jackie Fargo, who was 65 years old, and this Jerry Lawler guy, and I did a stretcher job. (laughs) <laughs> and I sucked in my gut the whole time. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, it just, you know, the most vivid memory I have is, is after they're carrying his mask carcass out of the ring, Fargo runs down like a madman and turns the stretcher over and keeps putting the boots to him. Uh, he should have ripped off his mask to see if he was wearing uh, another mask underneath. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> But uh, anyway, I'm still hanging on to the idea that it was the real Mill Mascaris. And uh, Margaret James is like, man, I hate it. I hate to, I hated to do that. I hated to burst your bubble. And I'm like, eh, well, this isn't over yet, Mark. We're, we're going to get to the bottom of this. But uh, at any rate, that was a hell of a first show to attend, whether it was the real deal or not. Uh, it's been a topic of conversation now for decades. And, uh, and Cornette has chimed in. And I don't know if he has this latest information, but I'm sure he's probably uh, crowing about that because I've called out Jim before for dismissing it. But uh, at any rate, later that year, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think about, you know, because I, I get uh, I get a show over the summer and I think I saw Lawler against uh, the Stomper. And I also picked a great show uh, in midsummer of 79. 
Lawler and Dundee headlining against the Freebirds. Now, this turned out to be one of the biggest nights in, in wrestling history because this is the first time that a promoter allowed Gordian Hayes to walk to the ring with the PA blaring their Freebird anthem. And the uncomfortable part about the whole thing is that Dundee and Lawler were already in the ring. And so they're pre and slowly going in. And the entire Mid-South Coliseum, there's about 7,000 people there, were all on their feet. And Hayes likes to always say, eh, and Lawler was sitting there with his arms folded looking at us like, oh, I just want to kill you guys. And supposedly they were in line for a babyface push, and that was abruptly pulled. Uh, and they were back down in opening matches as heels not too long after. So anyway, Lawler and Dundee are, uh, are still partners. They beat the Freebirds that night. But then it's announced that Bill Dundee, who had wrestled Bockwinkle earlier that summer, is going to get a return shot. And you can see that the king uh, is not too happy about this. As a matter of fact, a little bit of foreshadowing, the king's crown-shaped goatee, which has been absent for about a year, slowly starts coming back into place. You can slowly start seeing that, which is a clear indication that he is headed back to the dark side. Lawler wins the match to get the shot at Bockwinkle. And Dundee, you know, and I'm looking at Dundee, like, he's a fool, First of all, the title shot's his, but he puts it up against Lawler. Lawler tells him, I'm coming in there and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do anything I can to win this match. Lawler pulls out two or three chains, and Dundee's like taking him away, throwing him to the audience. He's like, come on, let's just be friends. And Lawler pulls out another chain and knocks him out. And I'm sitting there going, sucker. <laughs> so, you know, even though Lawler's a bad guy, he's still my guy. And I time it perfectly. My back-to-school show is my first world title match between Lawler and Bockwinkle in August of 79. And no doubt influenced by the Freebirds entrance, the king comes out on a throne for the very first time. We've all seen this entrance that he's made over the years uh, with the lights completely out in the Coliseum, spotlight on him, the theme from Rocky playing. I mean, for a kid who's only been to like three or four shows, this was really, really cool. And I believe carried to the ring, it was either uh, a bunch of job guys or his softball buddies or maybe a mix of both because a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of the jobbers that you saw on TV said he actually played on Lawler's softball team. <laughs> uh, like Robert, I think Robert Reed, uh, Mike Mashburn, uh, who recently passed away, and then various other guys who worked under Mass. But anyway, it was really, really cool. And they go 60 minutes, and it's a bloody brawl. And uh, they actually go to an overtime period. And Lawler pins him in the overtime, but of course, you don't get the belt by winning in overtime. So, so far, I mean, I'm clearly on a roll. You know, with picking my cards and uh, making each one count, making each one special. And as the year came to a close, for the first time, I jumped the gun too early on December 2nd. That's right. We had just entered the month and I was calling on my Uncle Robert to take me to a card headline uh, once again by the King and the Idol. Only this time, and I think this is what intrigued me as a, as a kid, their roles in Jarrett's uh, Shakespearean play would be radically reversed. With Lawler now in his prime as a heel promo, uh, defending the belt that signifies you are the greatest wrestler walking God's greenest pastures in Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, and small towns from Mississippi to the Missouri Boot Hill, the Continental Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Championship, which, as we discussed with Jerry Jarrett, was created as a way to hopefully unify the belt 
Alliance with uh, Bergania's organization and create one title that's formed by the AWA and CWA coming together. Sort of like what they eventually did with the AWA World Class in 88. So here's the once despised heartthrob sitting in a promo, playing to the female fans, uh, generously extending an offer to place their lips on the handsome mug of the idol, uh, for a small price, of course. <laughs> uh, I believe he was running that same gimmick in Jonesboro, only this time it was for $40, but uh, <laughs> still a bargain. And I think some men took him up on that as well. Um, but at any rate, <laughs> we're going to that promo now. But before we do, and I, and I mean this in the utmost seriousness, please, dear listeners, do not be startled by the local NWA announcer introducing Austin as if it were a matter of national security. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Let's go to the clip. The CWA World Heavyweight Championship match. When Jerry the King Lawler defends his title against that Las Vegas Universal heartthrob, Austin Idol. Yeah, Austin's going to be in here. And he'll be going against Lawler. That's tomorrow. And let's listen to some of the words that Austin Idol had to say about this challenge coming up. Attention wrestling fans, Sunday night, December the 2nd, marks the return of the highest paid professional wrestler today to Memphis, Tennessee, to the Mid-South Coliseum. Austin Idol returns. Darling, the wrestling fans, not only in the city of Memphis, but in the entire state of Tennessee, are not only upset, they are not only angry, are not only frustrated, are not only irate, but they are totally disgusted because they have not been able to see the greatest all-round athlete of all time, none other than yours truly, the universal heartthrob, the sexiest human being that ever walked the face of the earth, Austin Idol. And that's why the promoters called me in Memphis and they said, Austin, we don't care how much it costs. We don't care if we have to double your money. We don't care... Lola, I want you to think about something, and I want you to think about it real good. Who was the man that hospitalized you for internal hemorrhaging? Who was the man that hospitalized you with a broken arm? And who was the man that put you out of wrestling because you almost lost your eyesight? Well, the answer is plain and simple, darling. Let's cut the fat and get to the meat. Austin Idol is the one who put more pain in your body than any other thousand wrestlers that have ever done. And you know it, and the people in Memphis know it. And there's one thing for sure, just because everybody in the country is talking about this Continental Wrestling Association, just because they're talking about that Jerry Lawler is the title holder, and just because that you, Lawler, are talking about it, and I know just as well as you do, that every place you go, you say, yes, I'm still the king, yes, I'm doing this, and yes, I'm doing that. Well, the fact of the matter is, the only reason you have that title is because up until now, you have refused to wrestle Austin Idol, but I'm coming, darling, and I'm coming by popular demand, and for all you women out there, if you're lucky, I'm just liable to open up a kissing booth and sell kisses for $25 a whack. But there's one more thing I want to lay on you, Lala. There's one thing that I didn't show you the last time, and that is the Las Vegas leg lock. So you better prepare yourself, because once I slap that thing on, there's not a man walking the face of the earth that can get out of that hole. I'm coming for you. Mid-South, darling, here I come. So, of course, Idol is just, man, he, he's so charismatic. He's so versatile on the mic. The women, you know, the last time Austin Idol was in town, he was the most hated individual in the territory. And now you have women screaming 
as a result of one promo in the audience. Uh, and I really think if, you know, maybe they should have gone that way. I think that's one reason why Lawler's heel turn really didn't work in a way in 79 as far as attendance goes and getting the CWA championship because he was still kind of working with Dundee and doing tag matches. You know, what's a world champion doing in tag matches with Handsome Jimmy? It, it just didn't really make sense. And maybe if they had just stuck with Idol as his first serious rival for the championship that would have helped to get over but at any rate they do a pretty they drew a pretty good house I th- it was about uh, six thousand people for a sunday night show and usually you know wrestling fans are creatures of habit and uh, man when you change the night it can really screw things up but i mean just really 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 cool atmosphere uh but i'm getting ahead of myself here we have to hear from the king he did not like uh this promo that idol sent in and uh he still had some very bad memories of that uh, that legit shoot kick to the gut that led to internal bleeding, which, Brian, I don't know if you remember, we uh, it was probably one of the most awkward conversations I've ever had in my life <laughs> when we were when we were on Austin Idol Live, trying to figure out why Lawler passed out in the bathroom. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but anyway, uh, here comes the king, and I guess it's just a sign of the times. You know, it's 1979. He's got his oversized dark sunglasses. He's got his... Uh, you know, dark brown suede fringe western jacket and uh, and a rather classy medallion for the era nestled right into his hairy chest. And Jimmy Hart just stands by silently uh, holding the CWA World Championship. And, you know, it becomes quickly obvious that the king is also a creature of habit, just like the fans, as he keeps referring to Monday night to uh, the point. <laughs> you know, this is a live TV show. The director puts a graphic on the screen saying, you mean Monday night, king? And I can only assume that Lawler eventually sees the monitor, gets the message, and promises to get even Sunday night with the idol. So uh, let's go to that clip now. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the CWA World Heavyweight Champion, Jerry Lawler. Title and Jerry the King Lawler will be the one who will be defending against Austin Idol. We're going to see if we can get King out here to give us some comments. Uh, you know, of course, obviously you're going to have two shy retiring types in that ring. When they get going, when Lawler defends and Austin Idol challenges, and it should be some kind of a world heavyweight title. Here is the world heavyweight champion, Jerry Lawler, and chief cheerleader, Jimmy Hart. Showing off the belt. Jerry, get you over here. Walk around on your own time, as the old saying goes. I ask you a question here real quick. Go right ahead. Who gives out the tickets to these airheads that come in here? They they come out through their wrestling... Now, I know how you do it. I can tell right now this is the the most despicable-looking bunch of derelicts that I've ever seen. What you, you give out the tickets. What do you do? Go down to 3rd and Vance early Saturday morning and give out a ticket to everybody that's waiting there on the street corner. Is that what you do? <laughs> I can tell by looking at them, man. Mm, well, I didn't know what I called you out here to talk about. I know about. what I you call me out here to talk about. I got some things I want to talk about, so you just stand there and do what you do best, and that's hold on to that microphone. So listen to me. Now, let me tell you this. I'm going to talk about Austin Idol, but first I want to say something else. You know, a lot of times you hear people talking about Jonesboro, Arkansas, right? Yep. Okay, that's a big wrestling town, Arkansas State University and everything over there. Well, I'll tell you what, they've had a little wrestling arena over there that people have wrestled in for years and years. And just to be perfectly honest with you, Lance, it's really not up to the King's standards, see? And especially since I won this World Heavyweight Championship, I told them over in Jonesboro, if you want the king back, you're going to have to get rid of that dump and get a new building. So that's exactly what they've done. They've built a new building over there. Just for you. Just for me, exactly. Who else for, man? Shut up. No man. question about it.
about that. They built a new building for me. Tonight they're kissing the old one goodbye. So Kelly Hart and myself are going to go over there tonight and say our fond farewells to it. Okay? I, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Okay. Now then, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the fact that tomorrow night, Sunday, in the Mid-South Coliseum, the Universal Heartthrob brings that whole body full of muscle back here to try to take that very belt that you haven't had too long. But I will say this, you have successfully defended it while you've had it. He'll be back in here trying to take it That away. almost stuck in your throat, didn't it? You hate to give me a compliment, don't you, Russell? <laughs> Let me tell you something about Austin Idol. Now, I'm not going to stand out here and say, Austin Idol, I want to tell him what I'm going to do to him because he can't hear me. He's not here. He's not in the studio. He's not within earshot. He's not watching this television today. So I'm going to talk to you people out there, and I want you to listen. I want you to listen real good because I'm going to tell you what's going to take place down there Monday night. Now, first of all, make no mistake about it. Austin Idol has diarrhea of the mouth. You understand that, don't you? This man will tell a lie when the truth would do better. First of all, let me say this. Can you make those idiots shut up over there, Russell? What did you do, bring your family down here today? Austin Idol will tell a lie when the truth would do better. Ordinarily, you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. But I did listen to his interview, and today, for a change, he told the truth. Austin Idol said that... He kicked me in the stomach, and I did have internal hemorrhaging. He also said that he broke my hand, and I was out of commission. That's also true. He also said that he tried to blind me. He did all of those things. And he also said that he's coming back to Memphis Monday night. That is right, Austin Idol. So let me Sunday. tell you people, Sunday night, let me tell you people what's going to take place. You know, ordinarily, you talk about a football game or a baseball game or a wrestling match or a boxing match, you have to get up for it, right? What I love most is a good fight. I love it when I can really get up for a fight, when I really have a personal issue with somebody, when it's really somebody in there that I want to get my hands on and I want to put the hurt to, and it's somebody that I want to do some damage to. Well, this is one match that I don't have to get up for. Do you understand why? Because I think about Austin Idol more than any other wrestler that I've ever known since I've been in professional wrestling. His name goes through my mind daily, baby. Austin Idol, let me tell you something. No, I'm not going to say it to Austin Idol. I'm going to tell you people out there what I'm going to do to him. When I get him in that ring, one thing's going to be going through my mind. That's that internal bleeding. That's that broken hand. And that's that him trying to put my eyes out. And I'm going to make him pay for every one of those deeds tenfold, baby. When I get in there with Austin Idol tomorrow night, He's going to get a good old Memphis beating from the king of Memphis. Do you understand that? You will have He's going to walk out of this town, not the international heartthrob, because I'm going to rearrange those little looks of yours, Austin Idol. You're going to walk out of here, the international heart slob, because I'm going to leave you laying, baby. And don't ever dream of the day you're going to wear this belt, because it ain't going to happen. Tomorrow night, uh, Mid-South Coliseum. Gee, it's a shame he doesn't ever have anything to say. Well, just because he doesn't have anything to say doesn't mean he doesn't talk. But he will be wrestling and fighting Austin Idol. And Idol has done a lot of things to Lawler in the past. We'll see if he can take the title away tomorrow night, Mid-South Coliseum. We'll be back with more wrestling action and Big Red in just a moment. When, uh, when Lawler finishes up that promo, you can tell that Lance Russell loved him some Big Red. <laughs> as he, I've never seen anyone so excited about Big Red uh, coming up in the next segment as he prepared to transition to a break and come back to a studio match involving the master of the Holy Ghost Splash, which today lives on at Jerry Lawler's Barbecue. Uh, <laughs> Big Red's a guilty pleasure of mine. 
Oh. <laughs> There's just something so pleasant about the man. He's just he's so cheerful. You want to root for him. And like, yet something always happens that makes you realize he's hapless. Like when Tojo and Sonny King tied his feet together right. <laughs> while they attacked Ricky Morton. Yeah. Like yeah. you felt bad for the big guy. You really wanted, like, they took away his dignity <laughs> when they treat him like that. Like, you just stay here. We're going to beat up Paul Morton's son. After we just hogtied you. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I was and, and, for Big Red. Yeah, and he's got like you know he's got the face of a of a ten year old with the freckles and everything, and then you pull back and he's got this massive body. But uh, yeah, man, I think he really misses calling. I think he should have been uh, uh, an evangelist. Well, I got to ask you before we move on here, Scott. How was the match between Idol and Lawler on December second that you attended? Uh, you know, it was it was it was interesting because it's it's weird to see these two who you know I'd been seeing feuding all year. Just the styles were different, and the fans were really behind Idol. Uh, and it, it, this also included, I've only seen this spot twice, and Lawler's getting the stew beat out of him. He's getting flustered. He's, you know, some of the fans are still with Lawler. They're kind of pounding the, you know, the pounding the feet on the floor, and, and this looks like he's got to make his big Superman comeback. Finally, he pulls a strap, rears back to knock Idol to kingdom come with his big right hand. Idol blocks it counters with a right of his own and sends the king flat on his royal ass and it was and the crowd just popped huge for that so that was that was a really cool unique spot because when they, when Lawler pulled that strap that's like that's like Popeye spinach not working against Bluto you know what i mean it just it it, it, it doesn't happen and the finish uh, was sort of typical. I, I don't know if, ever, if Lawler ever pinned anyone in defense of his world championship. Uh, in this case, he was uh, he was wrapped and snared, let's say, in the Las Vegas leg lock and had nowhere to go. And he, uh, of course, punched the referee, his buddy Jerry Calhoun, to save the title with a disqualification. Interesting to note, though, that uh, in a rare case of wrestling karma going against the king, his leg is severely broken in a pickup football game weeks later at the hands of Jerry Calhoun. This injury would put the King on the shelf for nearly a year. Uh, so that made next year's holiday night at the matches much easier to pick as it was the one bout uh, that I think all Memphians were looking forward to. Uh, crowds had dipped to about the 3,000 mark uh, in October and November. Everyone was clearly waiting for Lawler to come back to get his hands on Jimmy Hart. And finally, it was announced on December 29th, 1979. Now, Memphis was never really an advanced town, and while 10,000 fans were on hand for the Lawler-Bockwinkle bout earlier that year, in August of 79, this was the first time I can recall pulling up with my Uncle Robert to find these massive lines outside the door to the box office. And I immediately, you know, get a little nervous, you know, are we, we going to get in? And, uh, but it just added to the energy of it. And everyone's like talking, everyone's trying, trying to guess the identity of the, of the dream machine. Of course, they're strongly hinting that it's Dusty Rhodes under a hood trying to uh, take Hart's money, but protect his reputation, all that kind of thing. And judging from the nosebleed seats that we were, we were, uh, we were lucky to get. I think it was really close that we almost didn't get in. And then the next day, the newspapers reported that like two to 3,000 people were turned away and several irate fans were arrested for literally breaking the doors down to get in. Now, I wasn't around uh, for some of those bouts with Fargo and uh, Ricky Gibson where they you know, supposedly got 11,600 fans inside there. 
I would say this had to be a record-breaking night for attendance. I mean, I've never seen so many people, and this wasn't just in our section, everywhere. So many people were literally, literally sitting in the aisles. When we talked with Jerry Jarrett, I brought this up and I, and I joked with him about paying off the fire marshal. And he just kind of laughed with a little bit of a slightly sinister tone, like, uh, yeah, well, you know. And continuing, you know, the king, it's his big return. He's already, you know, come out on the throne. So he wants to do something really unique and special. And Lawler's a big Kiss fan. And he had actually seen them in, in concert at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, God, I think it was for the Dynasty Tour, which uh, that was Kiss's unfortunate uh, deal where they were sort of playing around with disco, I think. But uh, they, still had really, they still had really cool outfits. And, uh, and this showmanship was still there. Uh, but Lawler says they, you know, man, it was so cool. You know, the smoke started coming up and then you didn't see them coming from anywhere. Everyone's looking around. The spotlights are shining everywhere. And then suddenly they rise up through the stage just magically. And the crowd just went nuts. And so with the exception of kind of a weak uh, looking uh, smoke thing coming out, uh, just very little smoke came out. But it was still it was it was very exciting. You know, the, the lights were dim. The spotlights are going everywhere. And man, they're playing the theme from 2001 and Lawler busts through that stage with a scepter and holds it in the air to signify that he is back. We have an audio clip of this and uh, I, I can't even express to you just how loud it was. I mean, I really thought that that flying saucer shaped arena packed with 10,000, 12,000 plus Memphians. I thought, I thought it was going to send us all right into orbit. Uh, it, be sure to keep an ear tuned to the joy filled shrieking of Miss Lily. Uh, she's the elderly African-American lady who sat at ringside every Monday night for, I think, 25 years. Her Majesty of the Mat was back and ready to joust with Hart's mysterious Black Knight, the mysterious Dream Machine.
Oh man, I still get goosebumps listening to that. Uh, such a vivid memory. And if you had told me that night that 14 years later, I'd be turning against my hero as a sneaky conniving referee to help the dream machine get a win over the king in the Mid-South Coliseum, well, I, I, I would have been just really excited. And because I was so enamored of the king's quest for the throne, which was really the overarching storyline for the promotion. Yeah, they had all this kind of crazy gimmick matches and personal feuds, but it always came back to the chase. And so, you know, I continued to time my attendance with, uh, you know, when Bachwinkle was going to be bringing in that turkey platter-sized AWA World Heavyweight Championship belt uh, into uh, and risk it against the king. And late 83... Jared had taken over the book from Lawler. They'd had a summer where they were doing a lot of six-man tags, a lot of personal issues and things like that, and it was starting to wear a little bit thin. So Jared went back to the formula that he knew best. He once again, and it was kind of a half-hearted effort this time, wasn't as detailed as it once was, but it was a deal where Lawler would take on all the top contenders to the World Heavyweight Championship. But this time, we're talking about the AWA, so you got guys like Mad Dog Vachon, Greg Gagne, Billy Robinson, The Crusher, Jim Brunzel. I mean, these guys are all perennially ranked. And so Jared had to get even more creative than usual. It's announced that Lawler's, he's ranked number 10. And he said he, um, you know, he went to Minneapolis. He's having to chase these guys down because they don't want to come to Memphis. I believe he said he knocked off Jesse Ventura and uh, Minneapolis. And then he went on to Chicago and uh, pinned Wahoo McDaniel decisively. But now he'd be re returning home to his home court to take on number seven, Ken Patera, who had manhandled Lawler like a defenseless boulder outside of Midwest McDonald's in several of their encounters. But uh, the king was not to be denied, knocking off Patera clean to continue the climb toward a shot at Bockwinkle. Now, my strategy was to see Lawler go through all these pretenders to the throne. So I'd get to see another classic title tussle between the king and the king of the world, Nick Bockwinkle. But then a bombshell was announced the following week. Apparently, Randy Macho Man Savage, the leader of the ICW Outlaws, was being pushed as the number six contender Lawler must face on December 5th, 1983. Now, I have been fascinated with Randy Savage for years at this point. The ICW show would come on at 10 a.m. on Channel 24 a local UHF station. And, you know, Brian, you and I have joked about this before. The opening to that show has more violence than an entire episode of Memphis Wrestling. There's just, you know, midgets being set on fire, uh, you know, people choked with boa constrictors and just, I mean, absolute mayhem. Ronnie Garvin beat the ever-loving hell out of Andre the Giant, who's got a gusher going. It's, I mean, it's, it's just, every stereotype about Southern wrestling right. in 30 seconds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And, you know, people thought Memphis was, it, it was insane. I mean, this this made Memphis look like St. Louis. I mean, it was just, you know, angle after angle. And then you had these bizarre promos. Now, even as a kid, I knew these weren't the usual promos, you know, and they were really going over my head. They would reveal the real name of Tojo Yamamoto as being Harold Wananabe. And, uh, the, you know, when the dream machine came in, they said, ah, it's not Dusty Rhodes. They're trying to pull a bait and switch. That's old Troy Graham, a nothing happening journeyman. He's trying to punk you people. Most of all, Savage was on the warpath, like physically threatening Everyone from Lawler to poor Lance Russell. He at Rupp Arena one night. <laughs> Lance and Dave had uh, taken a limo all the way to Lexington. They get there, and I guess 
Lance, he, I, Savage was under the impression that Lance had had a hand in getting ICW kicked off the local show in favor of Jarrett's program. And the parking lot was surrounded by a cage and Savage starts crawling the, <laughs> the parking lot fence to get, he's like, Lance Russell, you know, and Savage, you know, he, it, it always sounded to me like he had a mouthful of barbed wire and, uh, and poor Lance, he made sure that. Everywhere he went, whenever whatever arena he was walking out, especially in Kentucky, that he always had Sonny King by his side. Because he said if Sonny was there, no way Savage was going to try anything. Sonny so, was, by the way, Sonny was stabbed just a few years <laughs> later at a wrestling match. Yeah. Yeah, it survived. Yeah. I mean, you know, this this guy this guy was this guy was tough. Um, came back and cut the best promo he ever did in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did, yeah. Um, and I, I was always a fan of Sonny's delivery. You know, it, it was very low key, and uh, you know, most guys were out there shouting, and he was just kind of telling you, you know, kind of telling you like it is. It's just a real cool cat, you know. And you can just tell he he was like one of the legit tough guys. It just came off in the way he carried himself. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of Jared's crew, a lot of them were carrying guns at this point. This is how freaked out they were. I mean, you had, you know, a shooter like Bob Roop threatening to, you know, get you in the sugar hold. Uh, you know, Bob Orton Jr. certainly could handle himself, you know, against anybody in a straight up wrestling match. Uh, Savage was just, no, you know, everyone just thought he was nuts. And uh, the, the Macho Man had, had been knocking on Lawler's door, literally knocking on Lawler's door. Lawler said he told me years later, he goes, you know, we would watch the ICW show before we taped our show at 11. And I I look up and I'll go, that nuts in front of my house. So, you know, Savage apparently, (laughs) he knew Lawler's travel schedule. He knew that Lawler was going to Louisville on a Tuesday. So he shows up with a camera crew and he just, he about kicks the door in. He's like, come on, queen, come on out and fight. Ah!" And he's just screaming. And Lawler's like, what in the hell? And Jerry Jarrett told me <laughs> that he was he was standing bes- beside Lawler watching this unfold. And he goes, I don't get what they're trying to do. They spend their entire program talking about us. How is that going to help them sell tickets? Can someone explain stupid to me? And at that moment, Sputnik Monroe, <laughs> who was back in the area as a manager, shot up his arm and said, hell yeah, I can, Jerry. <laughs> And the whole locker room just erupted into laughter. And Sputnik was like, oh, the hell with y'all. And it's kind of stomped out. But when uh, Angelo Poffo's band of ICW outlaws finally ran out of money, you know, Poffo was a miser after all. Jarrett reached out with an offer to Savage. And according to the elder Double J, the Macho Man was shocked. Uh, he did not expect this. But uh, and for many reasons, not only had he made the threats, he actually followed through on a threat with with Bill Dundee. They got into some kind of depending on, you know, some kind of roadside argument over the fact that a fan had made Dundee a pair of trunks with the words Macho Man on the back. And Savage called Dundee. It's like, hey, that's my gimmick. Cut it out. And Dundee's like, ah, screw you. What are you going to do about it? Oh, well. That was the wrong thing to say. Uh, there was some kind of altercation involved. The superstar allegedly reached for the most dastardly foreign object of all, a gun, uh, before Savage wrestled it away and uh, cleaned his Glock with it. And Dundee was out of action for a while. And Dundee later said that some guys attacked him outside a gym, but a lot of fans knew the story. So 
you know, he, he's threatened Jerry Lawler. He's exposed the real names of some of your biggest stars. And he's put your number two guy on the shelf for months. And here you are in, in, inviting him to debut at the Coliseum. And Jared says, hey, for me, it came down to the bottom line. Personal issues draw money. And I told Randy, look, you've been promoting this match like nobody ever could between you and Lola for three years. Randy, let's make some money together. Randy was like, can I bring my dad? Yeah, bring your dad, bring your brother. He got a one count and then realized that it was a choke. Stopped it immediately. Get Reaper into the rope. Raper body slam. What is 18? Big, powerful. They've got some moves, too. Raper off the rope. Oh, look out. You know who you're talking to right now? You know who you're talking to right now? The Macho Man Randy Savage, and I ain't been under no longer, no. Four years, man! Where's Lawler? Get him out of here right now! Get him out of here right now! Get him out of here right now! You stand back, man. You stand back, man. Don't tell me nothing, man. Don't tell me nothing, man. Don't tell me nothing. I'm a world heavyweight champion. Four years, eight months, 13 days. Get the king out of here! Come on, get the king out of here right now! Get the king out of here right now! Don't tell me nothing, man! Don't tell me nothing! Why don't you just take it on? Take off. The 18 up here ends up with the win. 18 is one. Match is ended. 18 is one. You ain't never met nobody like me. Boy, you got that right. I want to tell you. I see one right there. Okay, just put it down. Put it down. Put that there, there. Yeah. Hey, listen. We don't have to put up with you around here on that thing. Hey, let's take a break. Just go to a break. Take it right now. Just keep on going. Just take it on. Give me the microphone. Come on, Randy. Don't touch me nothing there. Oh, yeah, please. Take him on out of here. I don't even know. Come on, Randy. What a moment. This is our program. Hey, Jerry Lawler, man. Jerry Lawler. A cage man. Where you? You, man, can't come in the cage to save the kid. Nobody yeah. wants to come in the cage. Oh, yeah. No, no, oh, no, you got to, man. No, you got to do it, man. You know why? No, you got to do it. You know why? Because you can't beat me. I am the best in the world. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something right now. Roller knocks my dad. Yeah. Okay, yeah, get in the face. But you know what? If Jerry Lawler's dad was alive, you know what he would tell him? He would tell him not to get in the steel cage with me. Well, he would tell him not to get in. No, 
You were told not to get in the steel cage. Watch it, man. Now you said what you wanted to say. I'll tell you something. If you don't get out of the studio, I'm going to call the police in here and get you out of here. That's what I'm now we're not going to. We don't have to put up with this. So we'll get the police down here and they'll get you out. reaction to this macho madman taking over his show i mean lance was the star of the show and plus lance you know has had to deal with this guy harassing him for years you know and threatening to kill him and all this kind of stuff and looking over his shoulder and it, it was just everything just built up and came out of lance in, in that clip and it made it all the more believable um and i honestly think if they had done this at first to introduce savage to the memphis fans instead of making it a part of lawler's world title chase i, I honestly i think they would have sold out the coliseum with or without the road warriors uh instead they drew about eight thousand, and i was happy to be one of them and also savage is like you know ranting and raving about lawler's dead daddy repeatedly <laughs> which you know i i i'd never heard anybody do that before uh in regards to the king and then also 
I, I think it was sort of a tacit understanding that you weren't supposed to talk about Lawler's age and you weren't supposed to call him the queen. <laughs> and Savage did all of this and brought up his dead daddy. So he's just breaking all the rules. And so it was really a cool deal and a very memorable performance. And, uh, you know, who knows? The proof is in the pudding, though. The, the rematch in a cage the following week. I mean, that should have been one of the biggest matches in Memphis history. Drew less than 5,000 fans. And then a tag match the following week with Savage and LeDuc teaming with Lawler and Idol drew less than 3,000 fans. Now, granted, this is around Christmas time and money's a little tight and houses are traditionally down a little bit. But if they had done it right and they had had Savage come in as this dangerous outsider, I think that would have made all the difference in the feud. But uh, even though Lawler never pinned Savage, he was suddenly awarded a title bout with Bockwinkle. But my uncle told me, you know, hey, I already used my holiday ticket, and he would not approve of a spring advance. But in a stroke of luck, this would be a Sunday afternoon show on January 1st, 1984. Uh, And this was pretty cool. This was the first time that my buddies from school and I, we we all got to go together unsupervised. Uh, We had Jimmy Moore's mother dropping us off and my mom picking us up. And, you know, they both seemed uh, a little concerned uh, about us doing it, but they they let us do it. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. We were in the cheap seats and we slowly made our way down to ringside by the time Lawler and Bockwinkle got into the ring. We didn't know any better. And with it being a Sunday title defense, Nick Bockwinkle makes his first and only live appearance sitting at the desk with Lance Russell to open the show with that huge belt looking larger than life uh, sitting on that rather bland set at the WMC TV studio. Let's listen to Lance open up the show on December 31st, right along ringside with the champ. Winkle again, Nick. Um, it's delightful to have you down here after uh, six years of trying to arrange an appearance, and we appreciate uh, your making it possible on the schedule. Hope maybe you will be able to continue to stay throughout the show. Yeah, I think we'll be able to manage it. Okay. Hey, uh, I do want to tell you a couple of things that are coming up that uh, you should pay attention to. Tonight, there's a dynamite presentation coming on TV5 for New Year's Eve coming in. And just real quickly, I want to say, uh, I I love how Nick doesn't promise anything when Lance asks him to stick around for the entire show. I mean, Nick already sounds completely bored, saying, "Uh, I uh, I think we can arrange that. But as the show winds down, you've got... This great shot of Bockwinkle in between Lance and Dave with this monstrosity masterpiece of a belt displayed front and center as they give their final pitch for tomorrow's big showdown between Lawler and Bockwinkle. Have a listen. This belt will be at stake tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock when Nick Bockwinkle defends this belt against Jerry the King Lawler. Okay, Nick, I had asked you, uh, coming up on about... Uh, in particular, the one tomorrow afternoon where you're going against Lawler. Uh, Lawler does have a decision in the past over you. I was asking you about the butterflies and, and uh, the nervousness and so forth like that about losing the title, and we got interrupted uh, with a little scrap there. Any professional who doesn't go into the ring with a certain degree of nervousness, he either doesn't care or he's quit inside. So that means that Mr. Lawler has butterflies. That means that I have them. It's anxiety. It's a combination of desire and everything that's going to go into all of your entire career. Mr. Lawler, you claim and you have this victory over me? Okay, fine. At this point, I'm going to say big deal. But what it really does come down to is when we crawl into that pit tomorrow, 
Regardless of what was said here today, you and I know that once the bell rings and you slap me up alongside of the head and I slap you up alongside of the head, we're in the pit of hell. And as this man said, well, Mr. Lawler will go about and just do anything he can to come out on top. And that is bottom line, isn't it? And I will do anything that I must. So I doubt in my mind that you've got enough ability to make it a scientific match. I do. But when it's for the heavyweight championship of the world, get it. I'm going to do anything that's necessary, as he said earlier, like you, to come out on top of this. Well, I um, know one thing, that uh, regardless of the outcome of it, and obviously the folks of this area are interested in seeing Jerry the champion. It is going to be a whale of a fight. Thank you for being with us today. It's your pleasure. Nick Bockwinkle, the world heavyweight champion. And for Dave Brown, this is Lance Russell saying bye-bye, everybody. So how was the match, Scott? Oh, man, it uh, it lived up to the hype. Actually, I think this is the best Lawler-Bachwinkle match I've ever seen. Uh, even better than the 60-minute Broadway I saw uh, in 79. These guys seem to get better as they got older, and they just continued to refine their chemistry. And the great thing about Nick... You know, every match was a little bit different that he had with Jerry. You know, one week, I think he even vowed that he was going to come in with a fist ablazing. And so the match started out that way. But on this day, this special, uh, it almost had like a Super Bowl Sunday kind of atmosphere to it. Uh, it's a very slow burn. Nick gets Lullard in an arm bar. It's almost like how Johnny Valentine would go back to a headlock or something like that. And just they're playing the crowd like a piano. And the crowd, you know, just when you think, you know, Lawler has a lot of 15-minute matches. And so Lawler kind of teases you that he's about ready to make that comeback. And then, you know, Nick does a little trip or a little pull of the hair or maybe he's got his feet on the ropes for leverage. All the little heel mannerisms, the little tricks that are, uh, you know, somewhat missing today. And he would always gain the advantage back. And the crowd is just furious because Lawler is just tied up and cannot get his hands on Bachwinkle. And finally he escapes and just pounds the ever-loving stew out of Bachwinkle. And we just think this is going to be it. But unfortunately, Bachwinkle fires back, accidentally hits Calhoun. Calhoun crawls over, and it makes it look like he's counting three. Lawler raises his hands. We eh, I, At this point, I've seen so many screw job finishes <laughs> that even I don't think I completely bought it. But uh, but it was a great bout, and, it also, and this one is the one that led up to, because there were so many punches thrown at the end, where Bachwinkle is so frustrated that he challenges Lawler to come out, hey, come out and wrestle me. Matter of fact, every time you throw a punch, it's going to cost you $500. Well, Lawler comes out and goes, yeah, you're, you're probably right. I can't out-wrestle you, but I can out-punch you. I know I can knock you out. So I've got $10,000, and I'm going to use every one of those. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to I'm gonna walk out of there with the World Heavyweight title one way or another, whether I out-wrestle you or out-punch you. Uh, and that angle is still talked about today. Of course, Bachwinkle would probably be the best world champion for Memphis, but he wasn't the only world champion to come into Memphis. And with that said, Scott, I know we have some audio from Jerry Jarrett, the mastermind behind Memphis wrestling, about the world champion in Memphis. Yeah, uh, I think Jerry Jarrett, when he first started uh, in the wrestling business, he was uh, helping his mother at the Hippodrome in Nashville, helping take tickets. And he said that when Lou Thess would walk in, the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, that, I mean, everything just stopped. And he was held in such high regard and held that, that incredible amount of respect from everyone. And he said it was just amazing. But here we ask him, in your opinion, how did Jack stack up to Lou? 
really quickly, Jerry, can you can because I know that you had uh, you held Luthez in very high regard as yes. an NWA World Champion. Uh, in my opinion, Jack Briscoe is one of the top five best workers of all time. Just so yes. super smooth. What were your thoughts on him as NWA World Champion? I'm going to say second only to Luthez, in my opinion. And, and you know, it's everybody has opinions, and they all vary. But Jack was one of the best. My yeah. friend Eddie Graham misunderstood me. He and I were on a plane, and I think I was in Florida, and I think we were going to Miami for a match. And Eddie was sitting there, and he said... Uh, I was talking about how much I admired Jack and Eddie made the comment. He said, well, there's nobody in the world, including Bob Roof, that can beat him. And I said, uh, boy, that's covering a lot of territory. He said, <laughs> who do you think can beat him? And I said, well, Eddie, let me tell you something. I said, a guy on the street, a guy came out of the street, and Tim Woods is no slouch, and he took his mask off in the ring. A fan did. I said, I've just always followed the contention that there ain't no horse that can't be rode, and there ain't no <laughs> cowboy that can't be thrown. <laughs> and Eddie got so mad at me. That he got up and uh -oh. moved to the back of the plane, and I didn't talk to him for a year. Oh, my goodness. And Jack called me one time and said, uh, why don't you have me back at Memphis? I said, why don't you ask Eddie Graham? <laughs> and he said, oh, he said, Eddie told me that. He said, I told him, Eddie, he's 100% right. There's somebody in a bar that can stick a finger in my eye, and I'm beat. <laughs> and uh, I'm telling that story because it tells you a guy like Jack Briscoe, who is a great champion, a great amateur wrestler, a really tough guy, but the quality of his character, that none of it went to his head. He knew that well, I'm tough, and the guys that I've been against, I can handle them or hold my own with them, but there's somebody out there that can clean my plow. To me, that speaks volumes about Jack, not just as a champion, but as a man. You know, a lot of people, uh, Harley Race, you know, Knox Lawler uh, has not been uh, a wrestler, a real wrestler worthy of, of wearing the NWA world title. But I reached out to Jack. He was answering questions on, uh, on a wrestling classics message board. And I said, what are your memories of working with Jerry? And he put Lawler over like a million bucks and said, we had tremendous matches. I wish we could have worked more together that it was fun and we always gave the crowd what they wanted. And one thing about Jack too, after he dropped the title to Terry Funk, he came back at least uh, two or three times and, and put Jerry over. Uh, 
to establish um, him yeah. as the number one contender to uh, to Terry Funk. So he sounds just like a, a tremendous uh, a tremendous man. My top three are, are Thez, Dory Funk, and Briscoe. They are head and shoulders above the rest. Well, I called Jerry, uh, Jerry and it was a Monday, and I knew Jerry was going to be busy with Raw, but it was the day Jack Briscoe died, and I wanted to write a column. And uh, he picked up, because I think he knew what I wanted. He goes, I'll give you 10 minutes and I'll talk about Jack Briscoe. I said, okay. Uh, and Jerry rarely kind of gets emotional when he, when he talks about, you know, he's, he's gotten emotional talking about Bachwinkle before, but I guess because Jack was the first world champion that he ever faced, he said, um, Jack is, uh, easily the top three of the guys I ever faced in Memphis, uh, along with Nick Bachwinkle and Dory Funk Jr., most of all, he made my hometown, the people of Memphis, believe that a young punk like me could beat the world champion. Yep. And I thought that was, uh, that was a hell of a compliment. Yes, he did. And very poignant coming from Lawler. I have some great memories of, of Dory Funk going back to one of the first title matches I ever booked was Luthez against Dory Funk. And yep. that was at the old Ellis Auditorium. Well, and in 1980, when Lawler was on the shelf with a broken leg and you had created the CWA world title, Billy Robinson defended against Lou and drew 7,000 fans <laughs> at the Mid-South yeah. Coliseum because the fans still believed and respected Lou and thought it was possible that he could have one last run. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, and just really quickly, th- uh, this we're going completely off topic here. Uh, I know 1980 was not the best year for you because uh, Lawler broke his leg and you had big plans in place. To me, that was some of your best work because you were so creative. You, you unleashed Jimmy Hart onto the world, who had never said more than two words before in a promo. And you guys drew some pretty damn good houses that year uh, without Jerry on the card. And uh, so kudos to you for people who really go back and study that year of 1980. uh, You guys did pretty well for yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, we had some, we had a lot of good help. Uh, Jimmy Valiant stepped up to the plate. Paul Ellering came in and saved the day. Yeah. It was a great Um, heel. The, the real, hero was Jimmy Hart. He really saved us. And uh, I called a big meeting in Louisville. And, you know, I asked Jimmy and I said, you know, we, we've got a chance to keep making good money. But more than that, we've got a chance to prove that the Memphis experiment is not a one-man show. And that kind of coach dressing room talk fired everybody up. And, and I mean, everybody stepped it up a notch. Yeah. 1980 was, a, was a crazy year. You brought Rocky Johnson back in. You immediately turned to handsome Jimmy. He was a heel baby face and he was more than capable of uh, picking up the slack. Paul Ellering, who was just a bland personality, a muscle head baby face going nowhere. 
started doing these great heel interviews with Jimmy Hart. Uh, Tommy Rich, you, you bring in the hottest baby face in the country and turn him heel. Uh, it, it was uh, it, it was a really interesting year. And I believe you came out of retirement and had a feud with the Blonde Bombers. That was, uh, that was fantastic. But anyway, we'll get into that later on. And Lawler uh, was also a huge fan of Jack Briscoe's work. Probably one of the best interviews I've ever had with Lawler. You know, from a journalism standpoint, I called him the day after Jack Briscoe died uh, to get his thoughts. And he was saying, man, he was right there with Bockwinkle and Dory Funk Jr. Just three of the smoothest guys I've ever worked with in my entire life. But the fact that this was my first world title match in Memphis, I was only 24 years old. And Jack Briscoe made the fans believe that a punk kid like me could beat the world champion. And that is high praise coming from Lawler, I can assure you. Now we're going to go to a rare clip. This is Lawler's first babyface promo as a challenger for the World Heavyweight title. He, of course, had this infamous match with Briscoe in September of 74 uh, and seemingly won the World Heavyweight Championship. But if it weren't for that stooge Jerry Briscoe (laughs) to come in and find the chain that Lawler used and reverse the decision, ah, Lawler Lawler would have walked out of there with the 10 pounds of gold. Well, in this case, it's not Lawler wanting the rematch. Briscoe has met with NWA President Sam Munchnik and demanded that he sign a return match with Jerry Lawler. Let's hear Lawler's babyface promo, and then we're also going to hear from Jack about this big rematch. Jerry Lawler in the center of the ring. Standing upright. Jack Briscoe with that vicious right hand goes for the cover and here's referee Tommy Marlin. One, two, this could be it. Three, the new world heavyweight champion Jerry Lawler. Here we go for emphasis. World heavyweight champion Jerry Lawler. Briscoe's brother. And Lawler is the referee. Apparently found it. And that's the way it happened right there. They and here's some comments about uh, his last action that he had. And of course, we're talking about the King Jerry Lawler walking in here right now. Jerry, the uh, fortunes of wrestling action took over in your last bout with Ron Fuller, and uh, you ended up losing about the Fuller. Yeah, well, uh, I'm almost. I don't know if I could say I'm glad I did, but I'm just glad things turned out the way they did because this was quite an unexpected surprise to get word last week uh, from Sam Muchnick that I got a World Championship match coming up, and and I wouldn't want things to go any other way. I'm really looking forward to that. I got to tell you that uh, it's kind of a little different situation. Last time you were the pursuer, and uh, you were chasing uh, Jack Briscoe and taking on everybody you could take on to get a crack at it. This time... Briscoe out of the clear blue. It wasn't as if he had never said it before, but he suddenly had an open date and he said, I want Jerry Lawler. He's pursuing you. Yeah, well, I think I, I understand from Sam Munchnick that this is one of the first times or one of the very few times that Briscoe has ever asked for a match. And I think the reason was the fact that uh, a lot of people around the country, and the word has gotten around that I was one of the only men to pin Jack Briscoe. And I did pin him, and, and the word's gotten out, and I think a lot of the people are telling him around the country, well, you're not a champion, you won the belt on a technicality. Lawler pins you, and I think he wants to, he said he's going to do it to try to set the record straight. That's right. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier because 
we will set the record straight this time. There won't be any technicalities. When I pin him this time, I'll put that belt around my waist and I'll walk right out of here. Jerry, the last time that uh, the champion Jack Briscoe was here, I asked him, as a matter of fact, that very question about whether he was ever going to uh, give Jerry Lawler another shot at the crown. And let's see if we can go back to that interview that I had with Jack Briscoe a little short. Lawler, as a uh, contender for the title, would you ever give him a reshot? Well, I would certainly would. Any man that would take something out of his time and hit me with it, he's more than welcome to return match. As a matter of fact, I'm going to insist on it. I've already talked to the local promoters here. I'm calling Sam Westnick, president of WA, and I'm going to insist on getting a match again with that man. He's going to be thoroughly searched next time. He won't have anything in there to help him with. That's what he had to say. He said uh, that he was going to insist on it, and he did, as a matter of fact, and it is a most unusual situation. But regardless of how it came about, Jerry Lawler will be sitting in that envied spot of having a crack at the biggest title in wrestling action, the World Heavyweight Championship. This is the one I've waited for, and I've, I've already checked the airline schedules. I'm going to have a busy week after I win that World Championship belt Monday night. I'm going to be making all the big cities all across the nation, not only the United States, all around the world, and I'll be bringing it back here to Memphis to defend it real often. And, uh, it's all going to happen Monday night. I'm going to take that World Championship belt. That's all there is to it. You can search me all you want to. I'm going to beat you right in the middle of the ring this week. Well, that's what it's all going to be about. And as we said, it is uh, unusual that the champion wants one. He wants this fellow right here. Yeah, okay. I want to say uh, three quick things. I'm going to be in Jonesboro tonight. But before that, at 2 o'clock, I'm going to be at the Bartlett Recreation Center over on Stage Road. Shooting a little pool. I think you're going to be over there, Lance. Yeah. 2 o'clock over there. And I got an uncle in a hospital I want to say hello to. Okay. Okay. And it's interesting to, to hear the two styles there. Lawler obviously is uh, egotistical and, you know, kind of doing his little dusty thing there a little bit. And Jack Briscoe is what a world champion should be. You know, he just, he, Lawler used the word, you know, he came off like a real sportsman. You know, he's in a suit and he, he's sort of speaking under his breath. He's just deadly serious about getting his hands on Lawler and how dare he bring a chain into a world championship match. It's just, it's just disgusting to me. Uh, and it is, and also it's just, it's cool for me to hear Sam Muchnick's name thrown around on Memphis TV, which I had never heard before. I got my hands on these tapes from uh, my buddy Chip Namius. Uh, special shout out to Chip again for providing us with this rare WHBQ audio. Well, Brian, looks like uh, we made it through another one. Of course, until the next episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, you can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow Scott on Twitter at TravScottBowden. You can listen to me each and every week on the 605 Super Podcast, available at 605pod.com. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and wherever you find your favorite podcast, the 605 Super Podcast. Scott, any other ways that the listeners can stay in touch with you? Yeah, uh, I... Pride myself on putting up uh, a lot of content each and every week on Facebook, and you can find that at Kentucky Fried Wrestling, R-A-S-S-L-I-N. Just want to remind everyone that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. Good to be back. We'll see you next week on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>